Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet. Sometimes it's called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one that have Examples of people being stepped through that worksheet process, which can serve as a tutorial for you to learn how to apply that tool in your life. You can also download from your app store a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. If you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563 999-3581. And once you call that number, if you press the number 1 on your phone, 
It'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I will then be able to turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and then we can have a conversation. And if you would like to get a question or a comment or a testimonial registered, but you do not have the ability to call in live or you don't want to call in live, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org and or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. And if we receive an email from you, we will address your comment or question or testimonial on the Internet show and then as time allows send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for the feedback or input. I greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be of service. And that's just a whole lot easier to do when we know how things are landing for you. So please... Let us know what is on your mind. We had the benefit of three different people calling the show yesterday to ask questions, make comments and observations, and um, we're willing to do that again today. We're eager to do that again today. If you have a comment or a question, if you have a testimonial, if you have a Uh, a situation where you're stuck and you're not able to find the solution in what we've already discussed, please let us know. And we will endeavor to discuss the issues with you in a way that benefits us all. So 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, if you choose to, press 1 on your phone and it will let me know that you want to talk and we'll have a conversation. There was quite a bit of um, I'll say interest and discussion last night in the support group. We had support group on Tuesday night and, um, and we listened to some of the Michael Singer lectures that he did around his book, uh, The Untethered Soul. And there's about 13 hours of lecture, and we're listening to that um, extensively at different times because it is so similar. And, of course, as Michael Rice points out in one of his uh, foundational lectures, if you can... hear something new from a variety of different perspectives, the same fundamental truth, but from a variety of different angles and perspectives, you will understand it more deeply and more quickly than if you just hear it one way, one time. And that's why when we're doing the support group or we're here on the Internet show, we introduce things like, the different books we're reading or the different um, speakers that we have talking at the um, 
support groups we're looking for the similarities we're looking for the truth of what is and how things work and we're looking to understand it more deeply more fully in our own lives so that we can make changes we can usher ourselves into a new experience of our own lives that produces beneficial results more quickly and the essence of this work is that each of us has dominion over or is given the ability to focus in one direction or another our mind energy and it is our mind energy which all by itself creates our experience of life so you and I are each very powerful creators and we are whether we realize it or not always creating our experience of life and every teaching that I introduce either here in the mind shifters radio or in the support groups is um, begins with that observation and builds on it in its own special way so if there's a, a sense that you have that you are a victim in any way um, please understand this would be a good set of tools for you to at least explore because everything about this set of teachings and the tools that Michael and Jeannie make available has as its primary focus removing any sense of victimhood and helping the individual whoever he or she is at whatever stage of their life turn inside to their own source of wisdom to their own connection to that greater intelligence divine inspiration if you will creativity insight intuition it's been given a variety of different names over the years and the idea of specifically working on removing anything from my mind body energy system that wants me to think this was done to me or I don't have any options or I'm a victim in any way is greatly well it produces very very powerful results in my life whether it's a worksheet process or an EFT tapping session you know I had somebody in my office on Monday who or um, yesterday morning who was just very agitated and very upset and focused on the facts the quote facts close quotes and the more he focused on the facts the more agitated he got and the facts were what he's seen with his own eyes what he hears in the news what his fellow co-workers talk about and it all adds up to he and other people are being victimized and horrible things are being done to them and there's nothing he can do about it and we're all blind to this and we have to wake up etc cetera, etc cetera. and so he's using those quote facts close quotes to generate a tremendous amount of fear and upset and we tried to help him understand that 
it might be true. Some of the things that these people he's following are saying might be true. And at the same time it might be true, there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. He doesn't have any control over those things. So the more he focuses on things he doesn't have control over, the more he generates within himself this agitation, anger, upset, blame, sense of helplessness and hopelessness, the less comfortable he feels in his mind and in his body. And so what we're advocating, what we're inviting people to with this work is to get very clear about how does your mind-body energy system work and what do you actually have control over? And once you identify that accurately, then how can you use those things that you have control over to improve your experience of life moment to moment? And that's just one of the most productive ways that I know to spend my mind energy, to keep it focused at whatever level for as often as possible and as long as possible throughout the day to keep my energy focused on what do I have control over. And my personal experience has been that the better I get at doing that, the better my life experience is, the more I prefer my life experience. So, again, the call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, it'll let me know that you have a comment or a question. And if nobody does that, I will go back to the Way of Mastery kind of turns out that after I finished reading through the first 12 lessons with commentary, or the first 12 skipping lesson 11, because that is basically a meditation that I recommend people do on their own, and I've uh, had made the offer that they can listen to it being read either from the mindshiftersacademy.org website or from the christmind.info website. And you can be in your own private space and have your eyes open or closed and be seated or laying down and go through that meditation. And and then it just kind of came to me to go back and do an overview of the first 12 lessons. And where I left off on whatever it was, Monday, I suppose, was in Lesson 6, talking about how the title of the lesson is that love heals all things. And in that lesson, they make it very clear that only through feeling whatever comes up in you, whatever your emotions are, whatever these energies are, feeling them fully, and only through that do you awaken. It says... Feeling is the message of this lesson, for it is only through feeling that you truly awaken. Concepts and ideas can begin to direct the mind to believe that there is something out there that is attractive, that might be even better than what you've been doing before. But concepts and ideas do not 
in themselves open the door. The concepts and ideas are symbols of symbols, and that is all. A symbol cannot quench your thirst. You don't go into a restaurant and eat the menu and leave feeling satisfied. The symbol is only the first level of introduction to a possibility. Only at the genuine feeling level can you once again know the presence of the Creator that wells up within you, around you, and through you, even now. You have never been separated from your Creator. That's the essence of these teachings. All such perception of, fear of, belief in a separation is false. And it's perfectly okay for you to do that. You can use the mind energy that you have. You can use the consciousness energy that you have to create whatever you'd like. Even if you, want to, even if you don't want to, you can create pain and fear and sadness because those things only exist in your experience as you're using the energy of creation to have that experience, to create that for yourself in each new present moment. It is very, very difficult for the Western mind to step into this observation because we've been trained to believe the opposite, to believe that we are victims and that the world is happening to us and that we're separate and that we have to fight for what's right and that we have to fight at all. And already in this work in the first few lessons it said that we are being invited to give up striving and step into allowing. I don't know how much more 180 degrees off of the Western mindset you can get than to say quit striving and start allowing because the Western mindset is all about consumerism and work hard and play hard and accumulate and acquire and become... And this message is the opposite. You already are the extension of the creative energy in form. The invitation for this work is to move out of trying to be anything but and move into the practice of removing any thought that you are anything but the extension of the loving energy of creation in form. And Lesson 7 moves us into the concept of birthing the mind of Christ. And it's one of my favorite parts in the lesson where it talks about how you are this energy of creation expressing in form. And all minds are joined and you're encouraged to accept this fact and to step into moment-to-moment remembrance that access to the Christ mind is your inheritance. 
At one point it says, here, let your prayer be this, quote, may Christ alone dwell within and as this creation that I once thought was myself. May Christ alone inform each thought and each breath and each choice. May love direct each of my steps. May love transform this journey through time so that in time I might truly know the reality of eternity, the sanctity of peace, the holiness of intimacy, and the joy of the Creator's love prior to every breath and indeed prior to every thought that arises within my mind. Close quotes. And then, it says, for when you know that you are holiness itself, how could you ever look upon your brother or sister, anyone you meet, young or old, rich or poor, how could you look on anyone you meet and believe that they have wronged you? How could you ever want to do anything but extend love to them? That is, to let the love of Christ flow through you so deeply and so profoundly that the other person in front of you actually gets the truth that you don't believe their illusion. They get to see the truth of themselves through your percept, through your eyes, through your offering. It says here, when you do that, you have offered that person the only gift that has any value. So don't try to heal this world. Don't try to do anything to make a show of how you love somebody. Give up the concept of being a busy bee. Simply be the presence of love. And then one of my favorite parts comes after that where it says, okay, so we've just said that you are the Christ. You have access to the Christ mind. You are the extension of love and form. And then it says, so what could ever possibly arise to obstruct the truth that is true always? We had a conversation about this yesterday in the discussion with Magda and somebody that's trying to tell her there is only love, so there's nothing to remove. And the way of mastery says, well, here's what happens. We use our power of consciousness to create a dream of separation and generate the experience of fear inside of us. And we make it out of nothing. We make it out of things that aren't real. We make it out of the dream of separation, and then we believe it's real. And it gives the story of a little blade of grass and a shadow up in some mountain valley. That, And what it says is, whenever you resist healing, whenever you struggle to learn to, quote, speak your truth, close quotes, you may rest assured that right before that occurred, you gave value to the thought that that little shadow of fear, that little blade of grass in that mountain valley was going to come and crush you and punish you if you lived into your true nature, if you extended love, if you acted wide open 
And it says, as as long as you believe that you're going to get crushed or something bad is going to happen to you, if you talk of love or you extend love or that you see yourself as the Christ mind, and then that's true because you're creating your experience. And as soon as you think it's laughable, it's laughable. And throughout that chapter, it says... Put the whole of your attention on giving up the patterns of belief from which you have attempted to crucify or get rid of or deny your higher self, the capital S self that the Creator made and placed within you. Wake up to what you have chosen to value. Understand that what you've chosen to value is creating your experience. And the idea that they're talking about here is that nothing will be unacceptable to you. Once you understand that you are completely safe in every moment, that your essence can't be chipped, dented, rusted, faded, or broken in any way, that the truth, that the only truth that matters is true always, Happiness is fully an inside job. Last night in the talk with Michael Singer that we were listening to in the support group, he said it more clearly than I've I've heard it before, even though I've heard this lesson before, but it just sank in deeper for me. He says, when you feel happy, where do you feel it? You feel it deep inside yourself. When you feel that that response to what you call love, where do you feel it? You feel it deep inside yourself. So what sense does it make to go looking for things outside of you to try to give you that feeling or to look for that feeling outside of you or to look for that loving energy between you and somebody else? It doesn't make any sense. So in Lesson 7 it says, when you finally get it, that you are getting access to the Christ mind, that, that was your birthright. And you've cleaned up these shadows of fear about this, that, or the other thing and, and really get busy doing it. Every time fear arises, see it as a joke, as false, and laugh it off and dismantle it with EFT tapping or reality management worksheets or whatever. What's going to happen is nothing will be unacceptable to you. And this feeds into last night with the Michael Singer work. He said one of the techniques that they offer in their yogi training is use your mind to take the opposite position of everything you think. Every thought that comes up that's negative, immediately think the opposite. Oh my gosh, that would be horrible immediately think, oh my gosh, that would be great. And if you can't bring yourself to say that would be great, you say, oh my gosh, I'd be fine if that happened. I'd be okay if that happened. Every thought, oh my gosh, I love this person so much I could never take it if they left me. Oh, I hear that thought in my head instantly. If I'm in the yogi training, I say, oh my gosh, you know, if they left, I'd be fine. 
wait, this is the love of my life. This is the, the, having them in my life is the first thing that's brought true meaning to my life. How could I ever think I could be okay without them? It's just a thought. And the negative thought is as false as the opposite. What he's talking about is learning to step back and watch the thoughts without believing them. One of my favorite bumper stickers is, don't believe everything you think. Thoughts, all minds are joined. Thoughts are random. They flow. They, And it's only the ones that we give tremendous value to, that we hold on to, that we identify with, that we add large amounts of our creative energy of thought to that start to shape our tomorrows. So there's a practice. Nothing will be unacceptable. Any thought you have about, oh my gosh, what if, what if that investment that I made tanks and then I don't have enough money to retire? That would be horrible. And instantly make the thought, oh boy, if that investment tanks, I'll be fine. Why? Because it's just a thought. And no outside event in and of itself creates your experience of life. It's your choice of how to interpret and respond to it that creates your experience of life. One of the lines I have highlighted in Lesson 7 is, with every word I utter, my one intent is to reveal to you the place within you, the very place within you where the presence of the love of creation resides. In you is the love you seek. They offer the thought that and they, and they they offer this thought a number of times in slightly different ways throughout this book. I and my creator are one, and that is the soil from which I live and move and have my being. Then it moves on to lesson eight and says, listen, your thoughts and what you do with them are very important. All events are neutral. Your thoughts about them are not. When you, when you reach the point where you realize you have access to the Christ mind, nothing will be unacceptable to you. All things will be neutral. And yet, there is this process within your creative flow, your mind energy, that is a creative process. And so what you choose to focus on, you create ripples of energy about. And they radiate out from you, and they bounce off manifest creation, and they come back to you. And as they come back, you're going to experience them. And this is how they say, even though you don't understand at the, at the deeper levels that you have created certain things, you only experience what you've chosen to create. Well, we're, they're talking about your unconscious. They're talking about your capital S self and soul. 
We're not talking about your little conscious mind that says, oh, I really want an Oreo cookie right now, and there aren't any here, and I'm upset. We're talking about, in the process of the flow of creation, there's a lot more to you than just your physical body and your conscious logical mind. And as it said right in the first lesson, this pathway is not about the conscious logical mind. It's not about the intellect. It's about the way of the heart. It's about consciousness itself. It's about your deep, deep connection to all of creation. And so it says, imagine a still, clear pool of water and you drop a pebble in it. What happens? Ripples go out from that pebble in every direction. Imagine that every time you choose a thought, that's what you're doing. You're adding energy to the consciousness of your mind, which is a creative force, and it moves out from you to create. And it reminds us, quote, I am the one who chooses the effects I experience. I alone interpret all neutral relationships and experiences. I alone place value upon objects, things, thoughts, and belief systems. I alone am the literal creator of my moment-to-moment experience. Close quotes. And it says, when you observe this directly for yourself, this changes everything. Once you observe that for yourself, once you own the truth of that for yourself, never again can you allow yourself to feel as though you're merely a victim of unconscious forces. And then the next lesson says, or the next segment says, you are not a victim of the world you see. Awareness itself is all that you have and all that you are. And out of your use of awareness comes all that you choose to experience. So it says, let's drop this thought into the mind. From a, from a high height, let it gain a lot of momentum. Let's drop it soon and often. Quote, I am not a victim of the world I see. I am a ceaseless creator. I am made of and of one substance with my creator itself. And practice that over and over and over again. Notice the negative pebbles and thoughts that drop in from time to time and just let them go. Don't add energy to them. Don't fight against them. Chuckle about them. See them with childlike innocence and move on. It talks about creating mastery and the first step in creating mastery is dissolving fear. And fear is not dissolved by fearing it, by hating it, or judging it. It's simply dissolved by observing it as false. Breathing, softening, allowing, surrendering. These were the keys to the kingdom they talked about in the, in the fifth lesson. 
I must be willing to just watch thoughts move through me and choose which ones I will value. I was talking to somebody earlier today and they were talking about how they know how right they are and how wrong other people are. And here in Lesson 8 it says, here's a very important question. Would you rather be right or happy? In the conversation this morning where that person was saying, you know, this is why some people say I'm, I'm a jerk because I tell them. I tell them the truth. I, I tell them that they're, they're, they're wrong and this is right. And, and so I shared with him the possibility that he might learn to observe these two fundamental observations. Number one, I don't know everything. There's things about mechanics I don't know. There's things about physics I don't know. There's things about cooking I don't know. There's things about my own field of psychology that I don't know. So I can easily observe. I don't know everything. The second observation, whatever it is I think I know, since I don't know everything, whatever it is I think I know is only partially true and perhaps even completely false. Now I've just opened up a window where learning is possible. And that brings us to Lesson 8, where it says near the end of the lesson, would you rather be right or happy? Heaven abides within you. True peace is truly hidden within you. The next lesson, Lesson 9, is titled, All Events Are Neutral. But how can that be? I just saw something horrible happen. I just saw a, a parent. This, somebody told me about this earlier in the week. I saw a parent in the um, grocery store screaming at their child in the produce area. How could that be neutral? And they're very quick to say in Lesson 9, this doesn't mean you should become cold-hearted, unconscious, or blind to someone's actions or your own actions, because part of awakening means to realize your interconnection with the web of all relationships. It means awakening to a reverence for the mystery that is capital L life. And it also means stepping out of judgment and into allowance and surrender for somebody else that might view life differently than you do or who might have less access to useful tools moment to moment than you do. One of the big things that, you know, in, in this work and I've been, I've been in the position of sitting across tables and chairs and couches from people for It'll be 50 years in just a couple more months. And I've been doing that kind of thing for 50 years, and we talk about situations, and frequently people run into a situation where it didn't produce very good results for them, and that's why they're ending up in a chair across from a therapist. And they would ask me, so what would you do? I suppose you would have done it better. And from a very early stage of my career, 
I began responding, you know, I don't know what I would do because we never know until we're in the situation. I can tell you what I would hope. I can tell you what I would hope if I was having a good day. But what I would do, I don't know. You clearly did the best you could in that moment with whatever was going on for you. Let's just talk about, since you didn't like the results of that, how you might acquire more strength and more resources and more tools so if a similar situation happens again, you might do it differently. Yet what happened is already done. There's no benefit to you to beat yourself up over it, judge yourself negatively about it, etc. So let's pick up from here, look at those events as neutral, see how you might use them to learn for moving forward, see how it might have been... And that event might have helped you shine a spotlight on the fact that, wow, I'm really kind of weak in this area. Wow, I really don't have very many skills in this area. And let's see what we might help you do to strengthen in one area or build skills in another area so that you can choose differently the next time, so you have the ability to respond differently the next time. And in Lesson 9, it encourages us to look innocently on whatever it is we value and be very, very careful to be honest about what we're valuing. Because everything we hold as a value, we end up creating and we end up communicating to the world and the people around us. And... Lesson 9 gets even more clear about how, even though in Lesson 8 it talks about how we're creating our tomorrows with the thoughts we're choosing today, and maybe for the last 10 years I've chosen a lot of angry, bitter, hurtful, resentful thoughts, and I've sent them out, and they're going to be coming back to me, and that's going to be my tomorrows. Even then, I'm never a victim, even as those energies come back to me. Because I have the ability in that moment to choose how I will perceive and respond to that. You hold the power to witness the field of energy as it comes back to you and choose to see it as neutral and choose to see it as a spotlight for you on the lessons that you need to learn. So it asks us to be very clear. What are we going to value and what are we going to create? And it says, you know, here's something. You're creating stuff all the time. You might build a table or a chair. Or you might start a, a nonprofit and a, and a website. You're creating stuff all the time. But here's something that's far more rewarding than an object in third dimensional space. Start creating more of things like peace, forgiveness, compassion, wisdom. These two are creations. And it says compassion doesn't exist floating out there in the universe until you manifest it and cultivate it within your own consciousness. It says nothing can truly be said to exist for you until you step into the lived experience of it. So when you hear people talking about 
unconditional love and union with God and enlightenment, ask yourself, do you abide in a constant lived experience of these things? And when the answer is no, say, okay, I have work to do. I need to reevaluate what I'm what I'm choosing to give value to above these things. Because if I'm not having the direct lived experience of my true nature as love, it means I'm valuing something else. I've placed a higher value on my anger or my bitterness or my judgment or my sense of being separated or how I know I'm right and the other person's wrong. And in Lesson 9, it it invites us once again to sit in a chair for five minutes a day with the recognition that you are a powerful creator. It says, sit in that chair and think thoughts like this, quote, I and my creator are one. This is a beautiful day. I've manifested a physical form sitting in a chair in a corner of one little tiny dimension of creation. How amazing this moment is. I think I'll just sit here and feel the heart beating in the body and the breath moving through it. Ah, there's the sound of a bird. I'm glad I called that to myself. What beautiful thoughts can I think right now? Who can I send love to without even lifting a finger? I am unlimited forever. I am free. I am free. I am free. So that's the invitation. That's an exercise in the ninth lesson. And it's a recognition about how whatever thoughts I choose and hold on to and lift in value and pour energy into, they are going to produce just like seeds planted in the ground. And here's that little story of the farmer who wanted to hold every individual seed in her hand before she planted them. And I brought out how that very image comes from the book As a Man Thinketh. The very image of cultivating the soil of your mind and planting only certain seeds that you want the result of, etc. It's coming back from the early 1900s. And then the next lesson is another major challenge to the Western mind. It says, look, the way is easy and without effort. Now, on the one hand, the Western mind is going to just chomp and scream and clash and have an uproar about how that's not true and nothing works unless you work it, etc. On the other hand, when you're done, when you're tired of beating your head against a brick wall, you could choose to use Lesson 10 as a part of the compass or the Geiger counter, the guidance system, that lets you understand that whenever you're starting to feel like this is a grind or this is tight or tense, you can take a step back and say, oh, wait a minute, that must not be the way. That must not be the path. And Abraham Hicks talks about this as the path of least resistance. 
And one of the stories that came up in somebody that came and sat in the chair for Abraham Hicks and was asking questions, they said, you know, um, we just had a break. And at the break, I went to get coffee at the motel or the hotel here, and the line was too long. So I decided to go down the street, down the block, to the coffee shop down there. And I left the hotel, and as I got out on the street, there's a jackhammer tearing up the sidewalk. So we had to go out in the street and handle all this noise and wait for traffic, and it was all of this. And yet, it was the path of least resistance. So you don't have to say, oh, everything's going to be absolutely easy with no effort. And at the same time, whenever I'm feeling like I'm pushing against something that isn't moving, I might want to just step back and try another way. And the story for that person at the Abraham talk was that they went to the other coffee shop, they met some people there, they had a very interesting conversation, they struck up new friendships, and they said, when I go back to the Abraham conference, I'm going to raise my hand to see if I can be in the chair to talk to Abraham one-on-one. And if I'm picked to talk to Abraham one-on-one, I'm going to quit job that I have, that I have this question about that I really don't like and it's not my passion, et cetera. They got the coffee. They met the nice people. They had the conversation. They came back through the sidewalk and the jackhammer and the traffic. They got back into the conference room with Abraham and lo and behold they were picked to come up and sit in the chair and the conversation was powerful so the point of the way is easy and without effort doesn't mean you just sit and do nothing and it doesn't mean that everything's always going to be brightness and sunshine and your favorite music playing and birds singing. Sometimes there's going to be jackhammers. Sometimes there's going to be detours. Sometimes there's going to be fears about, oh, is this really something I should be doing? And yet, if you go with the flow, if you choose to use the keys to the kingdom that they presented in Lesson 5, tuning into the energy of desire, which, you know, there was some conversation yesterday where I think Susan Bingham said, and I really want to try and bend my desire around to this. And I didn't interrupt because there were other things going on. But I'll mention today that when you say something like, I'm trying to bend my desire around, you're not talking about desire in that moment, the way the way of mastery is talking about it. Way of mastery is redefining the use of the word desire to mean the energy of creation that wants to express uniquely through me in each moment. What it wants in the flow of life from the one mind for the betterment of everyone, including me, is not something I bend around to my will or to what I think is better. It's something I learn to tune into. I learn to value it as it comes up in me, trusting those intuitions, those nudges, those creative creativity spikes, etc. So, lesson ten says the way is easy and without effort. And then, 
Lesson 11 is a meditation into the heart of Christ. And we've talked about that already as something that we invite people to do individually. And then Lesson 12, as we just finished reading not too long ago, talks about how in order to to gronk this, grasp it, understand it at deeper and deeper levels, we're going to need to make a commitment to softening our own mind, our own consciousness, our own belief systems. We're going to need to learn a different user interface, to use a computer term, for how we interact with the world. And it says right there on Lesson 12 in the first page, it says the way of the heart was, has been designed to bypass cognitive or thinking mind. Everything about our language, everything about our families, everything about our cultures has been designed to help us develop the cognitive thinking mind, almost exclusively to the exclusion of the the way of the heart or your emotional well-being or your spiritual self. And yet, all this first 12 lessons, one way to look at it is to help us develop a brand new user interface for interacting with the world. And instead of relying on, what is my logic? What are my thoughts? How do I evaluate this? a list of pros and cons, how do I judge that person as good or bad, to shift into a a way of interacting with the world that is heart-centered, that is intuition-based, that is asking to be shown, that is in tuning to the energy of desire, keeping my intention focused on staying attuned to that, allowing whatever happens, dismantling my resistance, actively working to dismantle my judgments and perceptions, especially when they're negative, realizing that the more I do that, the more surrender grows in me, and I recognize at deeper and deeper levels, my life gets better and better without me struggling at it. My life gets better and better by me going with the flow. My life gets better and better when I recognize I'm not the one doing any of this. I didn't create myself, and I don't know when I was created, and the flow of life is happening in, through, as, and around me, and I can enjoy it like like I would a, a, a wonderful play or, or, or a symphony orchestra performance. And it says in Lesson 12, We want to slow down and remind you that these lessons have been inviting you to, and if you want the benefit of these lessons, that you have to have active participation in the exercises 
or in the ways of helping yourself remember the truth of life in your true nature. You can't keep churning away with the conscious logical mind and the conditioning of your family and your culture and valuing that and thinking that's right and get any change. You have to till the soil. You have to soften and open. You have to ask to be shown. And it really, you know, one of the more challenging exercises in Lesson 12 is it says, who do I know in my existence at any point in time that I've judged and I've locked them into a certain box saying that they're wrong and I know I'm right and they're wrong and I'm better and they're worse or vice versa. They're better than me and I'm not as good as them. And it talks about going back and dismantling those judgments before moving on into the next lesson and the next series of lessons which are called the way of transformation. So that's what I have to offer for today as a way of review of the first 12 lessons. I sincerely hope this has been of value. I know it is of value to me to go through these things, to see the connections to other teachings, to watch what gets stirred up in me as I talk about these things, as I suppose I fantasize the idea of allowing everything that happens to be neutral. And um, I have um, appreciation to everyone who's been here. Thank you for listening. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll turn on the microphone for and welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Kim. I appreciate it. You're very welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Valentine's Day, Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. And our calling number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And we are working on the <clears throat> Enlightenment, which is what has been printed so far out of the Kaboris manuscript. And we are on, let's see, what day are we on? I think day 22. And um, for some reason, my computer's flipping here. Anyway, we welcome you to the show. We'll give Michael just a moment to get dialed in. And I invite you to go to the website, whyagain.org, and over under Camboris, there you can scroll down under that, and there is uh, the Enlightenment, which is actually about the book itself, and then there is one that says Enlightenment Study, and that's where I'm putting all of the archives, both for Blog Talk and also for Podbean. You can pick them up there. And... I'm going over to my other computer because this one is acting really weird and I don't want to get bumped out. So, hold on just one second. Hopefully it's on my end and not 
blog talks, but we'll see if this other computer gets me on without any issue. And Michael, if you're in it, you go ahead and start talking. I am. Because, okay. I, my Are computer's we flipping, so I'm trying to sign in on ah. the other computer, and uh, so it's taking me just two minutes Giving to get signed in. Yeah, okay. I well, believe then. it's just my computer. Thanks. Ah, all right. We'll just say welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here, and uh, look forward to seeing what unfolds in today's conversation and just what direction we go in. And the, uh, the objective for me of presenting this Enlightenment book, Chorus, is to do the best I can to convey the possibilities of living in, of developing and living in an Aramaic mindset. Now, I said yesterday I'd be, I was going to move into uh, reading a couple of chapters, chapters of a book that I started 20-some years ago after having uh, the insight that uh, when Yeshua said, and they asked him what's most important in the law, and he said, you must not love your neighbor, love God as yourself, but he said you must have rachma. And it's interesting, that word rachma, we were out in California, this is several years ago, I was traveling with a manuscript, we were working on getting high-resolution digital images made. And there was a group in Southern California that spoke Aramaic as their native language. And we went and visited with them, and we were asking them about this word rachma. And they said that the Definition had been lost, the original definition, but there was a tradition that went with the word. And the tradition was that it was the most incredible, important, beautiful, valuable jewel that you could possess. And when you realize that that single word is what the 11 most important words ever spoken were about, then you, you can get why, even though they didn't quite understand what it was, that was the tradition. And again, the, the insight that I got that fired me writing this book, The End of Suffering, was that the passage that came after he said, have Rachma, when you think of the Creator, when you think of neighbor, and by so doing, you maintain self, or in order to maintain self. He then says, for upon this, upon Rachma, hangs the law and all its prophets. And it is a condition in the mind that is the gateway that brings love, our created essence, human life, into our human forms. And so... If you're going to pick up any scriptures, I don't care what religion it's in, or pick up anything, most people think that they are reading words on a page and the meanings that the author had for those words. Few people realize that in every event in their lives, they're not experiencing what the other, let's say in the, face, in the course of a book, they're not experiencing what the author's written. 
they're experiencing what their mind interprets the author has written. The words that the author uses trigger certain brain cells in an individual, and an individual forms a construct, forms perception out of that interaction of energy. And so recognizing that everybody, literally, you know, like why, when really the teachings of Yeshua, you go back and read them, they're pretty clear, especially when you get to them in the Aramaic. How, how is it possible that there are approximately 32,000 different sects all professing that they have the truth about what Yeshua said? <laughs> What I'm offering is that each of them has the perceptual construct that his words resonated in them, and because the perceptual construct of Joe is different from Harry, is different from Mary, is different from Hortense, everybody goes off and says, I have the truth. We're not going to pretend we have the truth. But we have worked diligently, individually and collectively, the people who've worked on this manuscript project, to do our own work to arrive at a point where we can at least get some pointers on what was originally said in the Aramaic language. And from that rather than standing up and proclaiming, oh, this is it, this is the way. It's like, no, here are the tools. The man presented tools. In essence, he presented tools with which to open this gateway in your mind. That's the whole bottom line of it. You you hear him saying, I come to bring you life, not dogma, not doctrine. Not a theology that's going to beat every other theology in the world, but simply, I come to bring you life. And opening the gateway in the mind for life, for our created essence to show up in our physiology, is the whole bottom line of it. And the work is that of undoing, actually the Course of Miracles says it really beautifully, you need not seek for love. You need only seek, find, and release the barriers you built within yourself against it. That's the bottom line of the work. When you remove everything from your physiology, and the word that represents the removal of energetic patterns from your physiology is forgiveness, when you remove everything that's unlike the truth of who you are, and Rachma is set, then you get to experience who you are. And you can only have that experience. Nobody can tell you about it. They can inspire you to have the experience, but you've got to have the experience. And part of achieving that experience is removing from the mind those things that never belonged, that through resonance tend to come up to block awareness. Again, of course, you need not seek for love. You need only seek, find, and I add the, and release the barriers, the realities that come up and overwrite or overpower your experience of yourself as love. And that means that part and parcel of that is going to be that you're going to get to experience energetic patterns in yourself. You're going to get to embrace those patterns, and you're going to get to heal those patterns. 
So part of the objective of the work is to convey a, a state of being, a, a mindset that allows us to embrace of ourselves in love that block us from experiencing ourselves as love. And I, I share that because this is, you know, one of the objectives of this work is to empower each person to have a personal experience, personally experienced, to do the work of the direct experience of who you are as a human being, not a picture in your mind of your body and what that means, but truly to experience yourself as who you are. And so this book started out, as I shared, in a lot of living class. For me, it was like a major, probably one of the biggest insights I've gotten from laws of living was the import of those words, for upon this hangs the law and all its prophets. So I started to write a book, the 11 most important words ever spoken. As I was writing it, I had an experience come up. I had a, a major piece of work as I'm focused, I'm totally keyed in, focused to the, in this writing and working to convey, working to use words that would be as precise as possible so that people could read it and we could at least convey the tools and the understanding of what Yeshua was speaking about. And as I was writing, and this is what changed the title of the book from the 11 most important words ever spoken to the end of suffering. And that is that as I was writing, I touched into a major event in my life that was one of the blocks to me experiencing myself as who I was. It was a circumstance, it was a, it was a situation in which I experienced a great deal of suffering as a kid. What was suffering for me? And the memory that I had surface was a memory of being, I'm not even sure exactly what age, I might have been four, I might have been six, I might have been seven. And... I'm writing, and all of a sudden, I have this memory surface. Now, my history, uh, when I was in utero, the last six days, my mother had toxemia. They gave her Pitocin to try to get me out. They called my father at the hospital the night of my birth and said, if you want to see this kid alive, you better get down here because he's not going to make it through the night. So that was kind of my history, and from there... From what my mother shares, I almost died four or five times the first year of my life, and frantically she shared with me one day her mother her mother came to visit her, and, and she handed the baby over to her mother. mother said, and I was having trouble breathing, and she said, Mother, your baby's dying, and off to the hospital we go. But the memory that surfaced that I had to process through as I was writing this, that it was like the, the writing of this created a context for me in which I was able to you know, a combination of things. Be open to allowing this memory to surface. Be empowered enough to embrace the trauma of this memory. But I, again, I'm not sure exactly what age it was, four, five, six, seven, something like that. And I'm in my bedroom laying on the bed. I've been 
in bed for I don't know how long I've been in the middle of an asthma attack. And from my bedroom, I can look through the door and I can see the bathroom door. This is in the home I lived in when I was a kid. And I desperately need to go to the bathroom. But because of the fact that I can't breathe, I don't have enough energy to get out of bed and go to get to the bathroom. I just And I was able to embrace that experience and recognize the load that I, I was writing this book 20 years ago, so I'd been carried this load for several decades from being a kid of what for me as a kid presented itself as some pretty severe suffering hopelessness, helplessness, I can't even go to the bathroom. I can't even stand up. I don't have enough breath to move to the other side of the room to walk through that door. And that's when the title of the book moved from the 11 most important words ever spoken to the end of suffering because this man, Yeshua, brought a set of tools. Now, unfortunately, there are many cases where people who are purportedly teaching his work inflict suffering on themselves and others. But in fact, what he came to do was to put an end to suffering. And so this book title changed, and the direction of the book, the whole idea of the book, is much like Why Is This Happening to Me Again, where in that book I'm having a conversation with this character named Richard. In this book, Yeshua is having a conversation with a character who's unnamed, it's interesting, I was traveling a lot at the time I was writing this, and I was had, had been scheduled to go to a, a conference where they were um, introducing different authors to um, book representatives. And why is this happening to me again? had been out there, it was pretty successful. Um, they tell me that a, a successful self-published uh, book is three to 5,000 copies, and I was at about 70,000 at that point. And so a couple of the representatives were pretty excited. <clears throat> hey, we want to represent your next work. I was like, great. And I had two chapters of this book finished, so I arranged to send the two chapters to them. And it was at least my conclusion was that the material being presented was so challenging to them that neither of them ever communicated with me again. Neither of them returned my phone calls. They were both very excited, we want your work, but never heard from either of them again. So that's kind of the context of this book, and the reason I share it is <clears throat> I invite you to come on the journey with me of, of getting into the space of safety, of listening, and I'll offer this is not translation that I'm offering here. My sense of Yeshua, how Yeshua would speak to one of us today in terms of moving us, moving us in the direction of being able to embrace whatever it is that we are suffering over, whatever it is that we project into our brain's image of someone else. how to embrace that directly rather than projecting our own self-inflicted trauma or self-inflicted nonsense, sin, 
into our brain's image of other people and always having a conversation about how it's always their fault. So the first chapter, well, before I step into reading the first chapter, Ms. Jeannie, do we have any questions or thoughts at this point before we move forward? Um, no hands up. And okay. Bob's in the chat room, and he's, I asked him hey, how Bob. he was doing. And he says, uh, very good. He's busy researching prostate cancer. Ha, ha, ha. Up, oh, a hand just went up. Mm. Holding the space, so Bobby, Bob. Hold for... you in their hearts. Yes. And happy so Valentine's got a hand up, sweetie? Day, everybody. I do. Oh, I happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. Presence of love. Um, so it's Miss Celinda five four one. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome, young lady. Oh, How are you today? Probably, it's probably afternoon for you, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> That's all right. I live Which just proves the illusion of time. There you go. It's a good fantasy, Man but it's a fantasy all the same. Yep, you got it, sir. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things. One thing is Rachma. Um, because I have studied the Meridian system, and so many of the emotional states are connected to certain organs of the meridian system. Um, I was hoping that you could give me a clue about Rahma, especially in the light of Molecules of Emotion by Candace Pert. Uh, if you could give me a clue or a sense of Rahma in relation to the pineal gland, sir. And you're a sir today, dear heart, <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> say, say it again. I'm a what? A sir today. Oh, okay. S-I-R. Sir <laughs> Galahad. There you go. That'll work. Okay. So I, I'm not sure if your question is, are we asking in relationship to where would Rockman be physically in the would form, be, in the in the structure? Uh, where that transition point, like with Candace Pert, when she talks about the emotions being energy, and then at some point they become neuropeptides, is there like a gateway for Rachma, um, who is the gateway, or which is the gateway anyway, um, to the one mind, <sighs> opening it up? Is there something in reference to the pineal gland that would have any connection of that, a la Candace Pert's The Molecules of Emotion. Right. Great book. I knew Candace. She loved this work. And uh, she was a sweetie. I mean, she was just so far ahead of her time. In any event, and we'll hold her in a blessing, I was, I was shocked a few years back when she passed away. Didn't expect that. Well, you know what? She's she's right here with us, Michael. There you go. So in terms of a, a quote-unquote physical location, I don't know. 
uh, whether it would be it would make sense to me that it would be related to the pineal gland that that might be the actual what we call the physical location the energetic location of that filter also if you do some reading about the angular gyrus that's another place I suspect he might have been referring to in using the word or that the language would have referred to using the word rachma and I don't know that we'll ever figure that out however you know the the real purpose of of having an idea about it is that I make it a primary directive for me to maintain that so that wherever physiologically we might be able to locate this filter or this gateway that we keep it open so that uh, the whole system is fueled literally on a cellular level by love to me that's the objective is that if we are separated from if we shut that down then the energy systems on its own and it winds down and it dies but rather to uh, move out of entropy the winding down because we're cut off from that source is to keep it open and keep that flow of active present love moving through us so that we move into ectopy rather than entropy in other words we're continuously moving into higher and higher states of organization rather than breaking down into lower and lower states when we're disconnected but they'd be my best two guesses I would think the pineal or the what's called the angular gyrus seems to have characteristics from what I've researched the angular gyrus and how gyrus and how you would spell it. G, I believe it's G Y R U S. Angular, like you know, left angle, right angle, angular. Well, this is really fascinating because I've both because of my yoga training and because I've been interested in Tai Chi and Qigong. Um, I um, I'm from the pretty and the Touch for Health, by the way. Touch for Health is a is right. a standard for me. Good stuff. Uh, and I like yep. this simple book. I am not interested in all of the complicated um, complications of the new book that the son presented after John C. died. But that's the oh, that's okay. I can find simple we'll that go. good for me. Yeah, right. Yep. It's just that simple is good for me. Um, not that it should be good for everyone. But anyway, in the chakra system, um, the pineal gland is like right at the thousand petal lotus. So that, uh, and that is the crown, which is ready to connect to the infinite, which is above the energy that's above the body system. So I just the power plug. Ask power plug there you go sir are yeah. you plugged in or not yeah so yeah. somehow there yeah. is a sense within me that all of those things are somehow related to each other so i thought i would share that with you and maybe be my best input either one of those would be my best input and neither one may be accurate but we don't know that, but that's not what we're about, right? Knowing. No. <laughs> that's the tol- knowledge of the tree of good and evil. It's Use about the, the practice. Use yeah. the tools. Now, Use I have the tools. Other, that's it. 
two other things that I wanted to share with you. Um, I think I said this on Dr. Tim's show, but this is for Susan and Magda in case they're listening, and for all of us, including me. Um, When I said that sometimes I'm not really feeling, feeling, experiencing that this other person is love, but, and at the same time, walking through the middle of the neutrality of all events, um, I'm staying in the middle when I choose consciously to say the word sweetheart, dear one, um, all of these terms of endearment like you and Jeannie say and Dr. Tim when he says uh, you're welcome and deserving. Uh, And what I find, what I'm finding in my practice is that it is having a softening effect on me, my allowance and surrender and willingness to be who I am in the present moment with all of my baggage, uh, resistance, whatever, and say the gentle things, like Sylvia Borstein says, you know, okay, sweetheart, now be gentle with yourself. And I'm finding it has an outer inner effect it's a two-way swinging door. For sure. And, I, yep. and with all of this, Michael and Jeannie, I have been able to, after a year of struggling with this deep friendship with a friend of mine um, over COVID issues, that I felt like I'd walked into a landmine and now understand how I could have created my 50% just as well and did, in fact, through my naivete and assumptions and a, um, putting somebody else more important than source. And so I thought I would just share all that. I am now clear. I've cleared cool. the deck in that situation, and now I am ready to talk with her and just cool. share my experience and my journey into healing and, um, and hope, hopes that we can continue our relationship in a totally transformed way. Oh, we'll hold the space. I'd, I'd offer Thank one you, piece sir. of feedback. Yes. When you speak about your 50%, I'd invite you to consider upping that number to your 100% because whatever the response was of your mind, your mind's construct, your reality, is 100% yours. Nothing to do with her. her, except she she happens to be the stimulus for it. But it's 100% yours. And if I were talking to her, if she said, well, I'll take my 50%, I'd say, well, I suggest you put your number up to 100 because it's, it's the output of her mind if there's disturbance in her and the output of yours if there's disturbance in you and the output of mine if there's disturbance in me. And, and to me, what Yeshua came to bring us was a very practical set of tools for how to take responsibility for that disturbance disturbance, recognize when we've shut that gateway called Rachma and reopen it and embrace directly, rather than putting it into our brain's image of someone else, embrace directly whatever our suffering is about in the presence of that active love, which is the master solvent for dissolving or forgiving, removing those energetic patterns. Thank you. So I just invite you to consider up that. that. No, I'm happy to consider it because it just shifts 
the the perspective in the perfect way for me because I am aspiring toward the 100% responsibility for my creative power and also 100%, that's my journey, 100% accountability for the effects that I have on someone else. So with those two factors, um, I really appreciate that input. Yeah, that's very helpful. You know, the, awesome. the world talks about 50-50, so it's just a little, it's just realigning myself to the target more in alignment with the bullseye, right? That would be my take. My take is when I, when I want to say, well, they've got their 50%, I want to keep my left foot in the one world universal religion of blame, and I want to keep my right foot in, in the, the universal or possibly universal religion of experiencing ourselves as the active presence of love. That, you know, I still want to be able to say, well, they're 50%. It's like, no, they're, they have no liability or responsibility whatsoever for what comes up in me even though they may be the trigger for it, I have to embrace that wholeheartedly in order to, and directly, rather than putting it to my brain's image of them if I'm ever going to heal. And what's really sweet is this experience of, of committing to and focusing on walking the middle path, the middle way. Yes. Because it's so sweet to have that whole rainbow of possibilities instead of being the chicken with its beak on the white line. That, that's all it can see is its truth. It's, and helping to disengage my little mental finger, fingers away from I'm right. And so I keep going back to that kind of a 12-step mantra where it says, would you rather be right or would you rather be love only they say or would you rather love i change it to be love yeah i'm with you i didn't know that was in the 12-step work i know that's in in course in miracles that's uh, the source i'm aware of for that statement but it's that's cool if it's in the 12-step as well awesome it's just one of those little sayings you know that they come up with the mantras yeah Yeah. it's not really in the book probably okay Uh, Perfect. Thank All right. you, sir. All right, young lady. You have a complete. All right. Okay. Lots of love. And we do have okay. another hand up, but Linda, we did get the books yesterday. <gasps> I oh, yes. Thank you. Are you. Thank you. I just hope that if even if the languaging isn't quite correct, that Aria and you have your relationship where you can guide her through them in an interpretation, because I have a lot of respect for Julie Andrews. And right. Well, we'd have to read them to her because it's it's beyond her capacity right now. But thank you very much. Yeah, Yeah. and she'll love the Wang Doodle and the Wiffle Bird. And that's one of my (laughs) nicknames for myself is the Wiffle Bird. So good luck. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Cool. All right. All right. Have a blessed one. Bye. Okay. And uh, Bob from Australia is on. Your hand's up. Welcome, Bob. Oh, good morning. Good morning, you beautiful people. How do you be, young man, embracing you in our hearts? (laughs) It's uh, 4.35 in the a.m. here, and um, just about to witness another beautiful day dawning here in paradise. And what I love about this time of day, uh, the world is so silent, you know, it's... um, 
it's mystical and magical. How, how am I? Right. Um, yeah. Oh, many happy returns, by the way. Somebody's recently had a birthday, I believe. Yesterday <laughs> was my eternal day. Yeah, well, many happy returns, my friend. Um, yeah, life's kind of interesting for me at the moment. Um, with, like, you know, my appointment book is all full of, um, like, medical visits and not one dinner date, which is quite um, <laughs> quite disappointing. But um, I'm, I had some good news the other day. My colonoscopy results are all clear, so that's good. Um, but I've still got my prostate results to come, and I get them in about oh, eight hours, ten hours' time. So I've been busy researching prostate con- cancer. And um, uh, But for me, where I'm coming from, I'm... It's like, okay, Bob, you create this event in your life. What is the lesson you need to learn from this? Right. It's like, I mean, the, the universe is saying, uh, well, Bob, this is um, a call to arms, if you like. It's time to put up or shut up. Do you go with your, um, this life experience uh, programming and go the Western medical model, or do you um, go with your, your knowing of like nature is nurture and let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. So it's it's like forcing me to make that decision, you know. Um, and from the research I've done, I'm not really worried about the um, outcome. However, it is described by Western medicine. Um, I have a whole catalogue of natural remedies. Um, you know, in my back pocket, and I've actually started um, my own sort of treatment protocols with chlorine dioxide, and, and I'm seeing amazing results in the rest of my body already. So that's all good. Yeah. So it's it's awesome. a funny time. It's a funny time, and get your attention. Yeah. It's it's like I'm learning a lot going through this process. Like. Um, and again, this is just the data I'm getting from the Western medical model. Like 10% of all people that uh, get prostate cancer die, and that's just a numbers game. But of the 90% remaining, there is no benefit in going through surgery. There's no improvement right. in longevity um, right. or quality of life, quality of life. And it it's it's made me focus on uh, the concept of cancer and tumours. My my mum had bowel cancer when I was 16, and she had, you know, um, a colostomy. But it's like Western medicine goes in and cuts out the tumour and thinks, well, that's it, you know, we've done our bit. Um, but my question is, and again, it seems to be the primary focus of Western medicine, is focused on dealing with the symptoms and yeah. not wanting to go for the cure. My right. question is, well, what caused that um, naughty little cell not to die when it was supposed to, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's funny. And this may sound harsh, but I've come to the realization that I'm in a system whereby you mentioned cancer and everybody's frightened. There's a big fear there. And people are making choices from that place of fear to go right. through all these procedures 
Now, all these procedures make money for somebody. And it's, yeah, it's like um, the bottom line that I've come up with is curing people is not good for business. And I find that very sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's got money in it. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically, big big farm is about creating customers, not cures. You know, yeah, they don't. I, I there's no research done to cure anything. There's research done to find treatments, which people then will be paying for for the rest of their lives, basically. And in naturopathic medicine, the system I'm trained in, a tumor is the body's defense mechanism where it's taking all the toxic energies that it can't otherwise process out of the body and putting them in one place and building a wall around it to protect itself from it. It's really not the enemy. And uh, if, if do you have um, access? I, you're, you're calling into the show. I'm not sure how. Do you have access to make phone calls to Canada? Uh, through Skype, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I have a, a brother who I'm not even sure exactly how long ago they found him about somewhere around 10 years ago at a fairly advanced stage and told him he better do this, 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 or this, and or he would die. And he said, well, thank you very much, but I'll pass. And he didn't do any of it. Um, at, uh, at one stage, I believe about two years ago, he did some medical procedures that he had previously not done. But he's rocking 10 years later when they told him, I think he had about two years. And uh, he's gone totally a natural route. He works with a naturopath up there. And if you'd like, I'll, I'll be glad to you know, text you or, or email you his, uh, his phone number if you want to talk to him and you know, just get his experience, what he's done, because he's just rocking and doing well. Yeah, and they told me to be gone a long time ago. Yeah, I would love that. But also, okay. I found a great resource on YouTube, and there's a channel there called The Patient's Story. And it's all about um, lived experience, and it's all about cancer, all cancers. But they have a playlist mm. there for prostate cancer, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of video testimonies of people just saying precisely that. You know, don't go under the knife. Take control. Thank the doctor for, who is, after all, a contractor. You know, I employ the doctor to give me information. Um, but take control of your own well-being um, and listen to your heart, you know. You know and I've, it's the same with this, you know, my mission to eradicate suicide. It's the same thing there. It's people's programming that is killing people. It's not yes. listening to their heart. Yeah. I'm, I'm so with you 100%. Around. Yeah, yeah. My, my take is that the only reason we have any kind of suffering in the world is, you know, whether it's starvation or water shortages or divorce or war or whatever, is because the mind that's functioning out of some form of hostility or fear that it has no idea how to forgive, just does crazy things, destroys its own body, and destroys the world around it. Hand that same person forgiveness, and they're going to start to move out of those mindsets and change the whole game. So I join you in changing the game, uh, especially in that realm of suicide, for sure. And one thing I get, one conclusion I came to the other day, these little one-liners come to me. It's like, um, if you're not living your bliss then you have failed creation. Mm. I'm with you on that one. 
Yeah. Tapping in. You know, here I am. Yeah, you know. Every doctor I go to see, they're going, oh, they're the one, the fearful ones, you know. And I'm sitting here thinking, feeling, I don't like doing a lot of thinking, but I'm feeling, well, should I go around and worry, you know? No, no, that's playing their game. Why would I lower my, my energetic level, my state of being? Um, there you go. Something that, that something is inevitable, you know, once this, uh, this physical um, shell has done its job, then I'll just rest for a while and come back in another one. So it's, it's weird, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's weird how they use our fear again. <laughs> well, we'll hold the space, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank All right, take much. care, and I'll send my brother's uh, contact information to you. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Okay, holding you to blessing. Appreciate the fact you get up at four thirty in the morning to hang out with us. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. It's like family, you know. Um, and also, I just love this time of day. You know, it's uh, yeah. Nice. The world is still. The world is still. Okay. No worries, mate. Delighted to have you as part of our family. All right, my friend. Blessings. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hmm. Well, that opens a sweet space. Thank you for that conversation. And I I texted you his contact information. Okay. Thank you, sweetheart. And there are no other hands up. You've got 18 minutes. Well, let's get started on... uh, the end of suffering. So the first chapter is entitled, Who is Yeshua to Me? And the word Yeshua is the actual name of this man that the Greeks called Jesus, Jesus, Hail Zeus. Uh, his actual name was Yeshua. And he starts out the conversation saying, you realize they killed me twice. Character response, how is that possible? If someone's been killed, obviously they can't die again. If you understood from my cultural point of view, from my Aramaic mindset, you'd know that my teaching and I are one. I was restored after they killed my body, but since my teaching was hidden by changing the meaning of my words, it has not recovered. My teaching is far more important than my personal self. far more important than my personal name. Character report. But, but I've heard preachers over and over again condemn people to hell for not receiving you, for not believing in your name and obeying someone who sure appears to be acting under your authority. Without you, they say, there's no way to make it, that we're all lost, condemned to hell, and you're the only way out. They say, or pardon me, they come up with this question, have you accepted Jesus? as though it is of paramount importance. And yes, response, is there anywhere you've heard me suggest setting people up to feel like outcasts or worse, failures with such a question? People set themselves up as a special group apart from others with that awful question when people give, and when people give the wrong, the quote unquote wrong answer, they're pounced on with fear 
the likes of which I've never seen. I came to teach people to heal fear and separation, the source of untold damage. Unreformed reformers, the very people I came to free from suffering, to free them from the false teachers who use fear, have, to a great degree, taken over my teachings and in many cases turned my words totally backward. My purpose was to increase people's experience of life, to bring each individual into the direct experience of themselves as love and inspire them to facilitate that experience in others. He shook his head. Interesting, so many teach the opposite of what I said and use threat and force to get people to accept their interpretation of my words, especially if their pronouncements are rebuffed. But, but what about going to hell for rejecting you? Have you looked at what I said about someone who rejects me? My declaration on the subject was clear. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, it's interesting, just uh, an aside, it's, it's interesting that um, the false teachers of the day pushed him to judgment of others, and in every case he refused, but you'll notice their doctrine still includes that, well, there's a day of judgment coming, and he's going to do it then. He wouldn't do it back before, but now he's going to. It's like, and it's just so silly on its face. So once again, and if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world, to give people the tools for healing. Let them reject me. That's perfectly fine. Do you suppose someone who condemns another to hell in my name when I, with great deliberation and forethought, sent the same person my blessing, person's functioning in my name? Do you think the person who says the reverse of what I thought knows me? What I taught was a pathway to a sane, serene life based in love. If one does not follow that pathway, who am I to threaten and force them? Threat and force are the tools of darkness. Cloud the minds of those who use them. And the tools one uses always produces a result just like the tools. Make no mistake about it. One who condemns another to hell sentences only themselves. Any form of condemnation is a grave error. Whatever the pious front one puts up, one only condemns so easily because they live in fear and feel condemned themselves. This kind of intimidation has been around forever and is the product of the opposite of what I taught, a fear-based mind. Do you recall what I said 
when those who use fear to control the religious of my day tried to trick me into judging and condemning? My rule was, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Yes, I did inform people there were certain energies that they would destroy themselves with if they engaged. Energies that were off the mark. To use those very energies rooted in fear to try to force people into obedience was not anything I ever supported. How do I reconcile what I've been taught? You're supposed to be the way, the truth, and the life. If not you, then what is important? How do I figure this out? Again, another aside, this in Aramaic, as Yeshua alluded to in the first couple of thoughts in, the, in this uh, chapter, a man and his teaching were one. You remember he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, if, if I had a meeting with you tomorrow and it turned out that I couldn't make it and I sent my son, Michael J., in my stead and you went home to, you know, your spouse, you'd say, I had a meeting with Michael Rice today. You didn't meet with me. You met with my son. But in the Aramaic context, in that cultural context, a man and his son were one. And in exactly the same way, in the Aramaic context, a man and his teaching are one. If you've seen the teaching, you've seen the man. If you've seen the man, then you've seen the teaching. Or at least, I should say, you've been exposed to the teaching because if the teaching arouses in you something based in hostility or fear, then the construct your mind will present of that teaching will be something based in hostility or fear unless you first open that gateway rachma to reconnect your mind to the active presence of love. So I am the way, the truth, and the life is an absolutely true statement. My teaching is the way to get there. If you follow this path, you'll get there. If you don't follow this path, you won't get to the other end of the path. And so recognize that as a, a basic principle from the Aramaic that the man and his teaching were one. So when it says, I am the way, he's not speaking about his own personal ego self. You remember on another occasion, he does refer to his own personal ego self. And he says, if I come in my own name, I'm a false prophet. And false prophets push him all the time and push his name as though that is the key. But that's not Aramaic thinking. That's not the way the Aramaic mind works. So once again, how do I reconcile what I've been taught? You're supposed to be the way, the truth, and the life. If not you, then what is important? How do I figure this out? Fortunately, you do not need to figure it out. Just listen to my words. I've told you how it works, but interpretations that keep you in fear are put on my words. 
if you want to follow me and someone puts words or meanings into my mouth, but you can't find where I said it, or if it is inconsistent with the first principle, that of love, which I taught, I suggest you consider it suspect. So the basic law is that law of love. Does it come from, does it reflect active present love? If it doesn't, be careful. People often want someone to do their work for them. Someone who claims to be more powerful, one who can rescue them from their own weaknesses, or better yet, save them through some magic incantation. That was not my teaching. In essence, humans resist change and think that if they can just say the right name, they can do anything and hope shouting that name will save them from the consequences of their own behavior. And that's a lie. Excuse me, I'm just making a notes note. I'll probably pick this book back up and start writing again. I'd, I'd actually set it down way back when when the uh, publisher's representative I, I sent it to just totally you know ran off. So people think they can do anything and hope that shouting my name will save them from the consequences of their own behavior, and that's just a lie. They say things like, well, just give me a name to call on. Don't make me look at myself or face myself or change. Let me stay the same. Let me go my merry way, and you fix it for me. You take care of my life. To them I said, if another shall come in his name, him you'll receive. But they ignored me and shouted all the more, no, it's you who must do this for us. And you hear, unfortunately, much of what's called Christianity today, many of those sects, that's the whole bottom line. There's no obligation for you to do your own work. In fact, often in the name of supposedly his teaching, you're told there's nothing you can do because you're hopeless and helpless. And that's all just part of the error that he came to correct. I cannot do it for you. I did not come for that. But to show you how to heal your own mind. Suffering wears you down and is self-inflicted. I know how to end it, but if you're still suffering, you do not. You must learn what I said, do it, and change yourself. Those who want to keep you in unconsciousness and weakness can't allow you to understand what I said, for in your healing is your power. And you make a better subject when you're powerless. It takes responsibility and work. 
And those who did not want to do the work, who said, just call his name, there's nothing you have to do, nothing you can do, you're just a helpless sinner anyway. I say, many think they know me, yet leave my instructions untied. Have they applied and experienced what I said they could? If not, how could they possibly teach others? Call when I said, I have overcome the world, and he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Note, I did not say, he who lets me overcome the world for him. I meant there was a work to be done. I taught you how to live in this world, but not be of it. And that is the work of self-mastery. I taught the possible, the overcoming life, and because of its difficulty, it has been left untried. Instead, substituting belief for effort and the inner work I demonstrated and instructed people to do. In one case, several of my disciples, when instructed in the work required for healing, left muttering, too hard a saying, and they never returned. People in the art and science of undoing the false self and refraining from the habits, behaviors, addictions, and sensations that accompany that state of mind. I even informed them that the result would be a sort of death, saying that in order for you to live, you have to die. takes no effort to live in your natural state of love unless you've lost your true identity. Once that occurs, the effort, the work of forgiving, all the dynamics of the false self and the alluring sensations that accompany living in a lie, all of that which presents, prevents pardon me, one from living as love must be faced and dealt with. And we are down to the last few seconds, so we'll pick this up tomorrow and continue. And I'll just say thank you deeply for your listening ears and your participation. Had the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye.